According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in the book of Isaiah. We have been in this study now for 49 weeks. This is our 50th lesson, and so we are at chapter 50. We are doing something very similar in uh, having an in-depth approach for one session and having more of an overview approach for uh, another session. And that's what we're doing here at the 11 o'clock hour is more of the overview, one chapter per week. And uh, this week we come at chapter 11, I mean chapter 50, which only has 11 verses. So it ought to be a pretty simple chapter to get through in, uh, in the time that we have. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. All right, so it's a happy message. (laughs) We're going to begin with a word of prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time in his word today, and uh, to humble ourselves under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning once again, undeserving. Not one of us has any business being here today, Father, but by your grace, here we are. We thank you that you you have supplied us the grace provision of the Word of God, a lampstand where the Word of God is taught, gifted pastor, and all the blessings that come with the church age. I thank you for the uh, command whereby we are ordered to be diligent to present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed. And I thank you that by your grace, we have brothers and sisters here this morning that are in obedience to that command. So bless uh, each one of us today, Father. Open the eyes of our understanding. Teach us from your truth. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in chapter 50, what we're going to have here is the third of the four servant songs. We've discussed them previously in chapter 42 and in chapter 49. We have the third one that arrives here. Chapter 50 consists of the third servant song prophesying the coming Messiah as the faithful servant of Yahweh. And we've seen his servant role. In fact, last week we stressed it very highly in chapter 49, the servant role. We had song number one in Isaiah chapter 42, the first nine verses. Song number two in chapter 49, which we were looking at last week, basically the first half of the chapter, verses one through 13. This morning we're dealing with servant song number three, and in any of these songs what we have is we have a very clear picture of Jesus Christ in his first advent, coming humbly, coming as a servant, seeking to, uh, to save, and uh, rejected by his nation. And of course the clearest of all the servant songs is the one maybe we know the best from Isaiah 52 and 53. Um, servant song number four we'll have coming up in a couple of weeks um, at the end of chapter 52, crossing over into chapter 53, from 52.13 to 53.12. And so if you're not familiar with the term, and I don't know that I've actually called them servant songs, and uh, that's a deficiency on my part. I should have given you that terminology uh, back in chapter 42. I recommend, by the way, uh, an author, F. Dwayne Lindsay, if you're not familiar with him, and he's got a book uh, published in 1985. In fact, it's a compilation of journal articles. So if you have the uh, Bibsac journals in your Logos software, then you have the content already, as it was originally published in five parts uh, back in the early 1980s. I wish I would have been reading 
Bibsack in the early 1980s. I would have learned a lot, I think, in this respect. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but what uh, is kind of fun to do when you, uh, if you integrate the journals with your uh, Bible software application is uh, you then have the opportunity to read through the uh, articles, read through the content, have the verses that are all linked and, and looking up the verses as you're working your way through the text. But then you're also blessed to uh, read every other article that happens to be in the issue. <laughs> and in which case, then you end up on a rabbit trail that lasted you half of the afternoon. It has nothing to do with Isaiah chapter 50. But nevertheless, you're reading such names as Norman Geisler. Sound familiar? We're doing his systematic theology right now on Sunday nights. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert and uh, the material that he wrote in First uh, Peter. Some great stuff out of First Peter. F. Dwayne Lindsay is the author of the Isaiah uh, Songs of the Servant. Uh, Dwayne Lifton and then John F. Walvoord ought to be another very familiar name to, uh, to each one of us. So you work your way through these articles and uh, you can spend an entire afternoon doing that. If you'd like, you can get the book, and uh, like I say, they took the five journal articles, compiled them together, and uh, you will find them in, uh, at Amazon or used book marketplaces and so forth as little as one penny. You'll spend more on shipping. You'll spend three ninety nine to have the book mailed to you uh, for a one-cent book. And I find it unfortunate because the fact that this book is selling for one cent is pathetic. <laughs> right? This uh, book is worth a lot of money related to the content that comes across. You get some of that here today, and you've already had some of it in uh, chapter 42 and in chapter 49. So just share that with you this morning for your uh, edification. As we look at the verse three verses, though, before we get to the song itself, the song starts in verse four. When we deal with these first three verses, the certificate of divorce, and um, where is it, he says. So thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce? Have you seen it? (laughs) Where is it? Show it to me. By which I have sent your mother away. Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? It's a bit of a trick question because obviously God has no creditors. All right. The creator God of the universe is not in debt to anybody. In the ancient world, of course, if parents fell on hard times, they could, and often did, sell their children into servitude as a way to not only get themselves out of a financial bind, but also fewer mouths to feed (laughs) and so forth. That's heartless, it's cold, it's hard for us to relate to in our modern sensibilities. But there it is. Uh, So he's saying here, where is the certificate of divorce? Show it to me. To whom of my creditors did I sell you? Name him. Name names. Point the fingers. Highlight to whom I'm in debt. Because neither statement is true. He goes on to say, Behold, you were sold for your iniquities. It wasn't a debt enslavement, and it wasn't my shortcoming that put you in your spot. It was your shortcoming that put you in your spot. And I did not divorce your mother. She left me. She is the harlot that has been playing the harlot with every lover under the sun and and so forth. We want to understand these things for uh, what they are. Verse 2, why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? When, When the word of God goes forth and the prophetic message is delivered, why is there no response to the word of God? Why is there no man that will stand up and live and serve the Lord in his generation? All right. Verse three, is my hand so short? I'm sorry, verse two, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver? 
Is there a reason why you're ignoring my promises? Do you think I can't make good on what I say I'm going to do? (laughs) Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. In other words, how dare you? How can you doubt me when look what I do? Look what I have done. Look, do you know who I am? Why are you denying my ability to care for you? All right, so those are the first three verses. And if I was in charge of versification, I probably would have taken this paragraph and left it in chapter 49, where I think it really belongs. The opening paragraph of chapter 50 is actually the third answer to chapter 49 and verse 14, which we taught last week. And this was the grumbling of Jerusalem here, the grumbling of Judah, the southern kingdom. It says, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And, and we get that. We're tempted as well in our moments of darkness and our moments of sorrow and those seasons where we're slightly disoriented to the truth of God's word. We start to think that, um, that, that somehow God is overlooking things that uh, he doesn't have a handle on it, he forgot who I am, he's not really here, or he hates me, or anything of that nature. And so here is Zion, the very object of God's love on earth, saying, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And then if you remember last week, there were two answers to that, that he went forth. He said, can a nursing mother forget her child? And he used the, the mother metaphor in a couple of different ways. He had two answers for that. How dare you say that I've forgotten you? And really what we have here is now the third answer to that same question, that same issue. And the third way that he proves that he has not abandoned Israel is, show me the certificate. If I have, if I have sold you, show me. If I have divorced your mother, show me the certificate. I'm not the one who filed, he says. Okay, She walked out on me would be a better way to think of this. Now, the way that it's given here is confrontational and in a denial, slightly different from the use in Jeremiah. And that's why I think people get confused because they want to run to the Jeremiah passage and they want to see a certificate of divorce that is there. And then they say, well, it's the same language. It has to be the same concept or it has to be the same application. And that's where they miss the mark. Yes, it's the same language. But it misses the point, both in Isaiah 50 and in Jeremiah chapter 3, if you're going to lump them all together and say, well, it's, it's two different prophets delivering the same message. Absolutely not. So what we're seeing here in these verses is the Lord is actually affirming his love for Zion, and he is denying the certificate of a divorce. When he says, where is it? He's asking them to bring it forward. It's a very simple proof. You can prove me wrong if you just show it to me. Right? It's like people want to deny the resurrection. Well, it's an empty grave, so show me the body. <laughs> right? If, if you can produce a body, then I'll tell you that Jesus didn't rise again. But if you can't find a body for me, because that tomb is empty, then uh, the Lord says, hey, I've made my point. All right? You can't produce a body because he rose from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God. Likewise, you can't produce a certificate of divorce. He says, because I have not issued one. And that's the impact here, I think, of this chapter. And so when we're looking at 49:14 and they're moping about uh, Yahweh not loving them anymore, and you see the two answers he gives in chapter 49, and now this third answer that he gives in the first part of chapter 50, I think we have a better context for handling 
the certificate of divorce. Now, it is different than what we have in Jeremiah. So let's look at Jeremiah 3. And remember, we're going to Jeremiah and when we wrap up 66 chapters of Isaiah. So uh, stay tuned. Should be uh, early spring, right? We're going to be finishing Isaiah. I think we get to chapter 60 by the end of this year. And there's only 66 chapters in uh, Isaiah. And then we'll pick up Jeremiah. We'll do 52 weeks in Jeremiah. So it'll take a full year to do, to do Jeremiah. Now, in Jeremiah 3, 8, there is a certificate of divorce. But notice carefully who the certificate was issued to. Um, let's see, context here. If we pick up in verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? And so he's admonishing now the southern kingdom to learn from the northern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom was swept away by the Assyrians, and then about 150 years after that, the southern kingdom finally was swept away by the Babylonians. And what happened in the meantime? What happened in the meantime was a lot of believers in the south that should have learned. And sadly, many of them didn't. Most of them didn't. And that's the point of this chapter. Have you seen... What faithless Israel did. She went up on every high hill and on under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. All right? So the younger sister better learn from the older sister. And sadly, she doesn't. Uh, verse 8 And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. And so that language is there, and Yahweh admits to it. He acknowledges the fact that when he sent Assyria in to wipe out the northern kingdom, that in fact he was issuing that certificate, sending the, the northern sister, the northern kingdom, the older sister, away. But not the younger sister. You'll notice the younger sister was supposed to learn. And uh, so I've given her a certificate, a writ of divorce, verse 8. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, so she also went and was a harlot also. And so what happens then when you have the example that's given and you should learn from somebody else's failure and yet you don't? What happens then? The consequence then? The double discipline. We call it the double compound discipline because you have an even greater accountability than the first folks that failed. See? And it goes on. Verse 9, Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. In spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. <laughs> okay? And boy, that ought, to, uh, that ought to get your attention. It's kind of like when the Lord says, you know what? Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if they would have seen what you guys saw. <laughs> okay? That's how bad you guys are in seeing what you're seeing and yet not responding to the revelation from God. And we have the, uh, the issue there, all right? If you want more background on the writ of divorce, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. This was the mechanism that was provided in Mosaic law by which Israel was not commanded to ever divorce, but they were permitted to divorce under certain circumstances given the hardness of heart and given the issues of, uh, of sin 
within, uh, within marriage. And so divorce was a provision under permissive will, but it was never commanded. Never commanded. And the Lord taught that very clearly in Matthew 19 when he was dealing with the issues there in Deuteronomy 24. So you can get kind of the background on that. But as we get back now to Isaiah, the point is, where is it? Show me the certificate. Where is it? If I have, in fact, sent her away, like I did the northern kingdom, okay? If, in fact, I have already issued that certificate and sent the southern kingdom away, show me. All right? Because the point is, in Isaiah's day and age, they have not yet reached that point. They ultimately will, in, in Jeremiah's day, the Babylonians will take them away, but not in Isaiah's day. And they cannot blame him for sending them off. They can only blame themselves. The Jewish diaspora... The reason why the Jewish people were scattered to Assyria, to Babylon, to the ends of the earth. The reason why they were not, even to this day, it's only been in in, in the last, I think, five years, 2010, finally happened where there are more Jews in Israel than there are in the United States. You realize how recently that is? We've been in this building longer than that. Or more Jews in Jerusalem than in New York City? It used to be, for years and years, there were more Jews in New York City than there were in Jerusalem. That tipped in 2010. Today, there are more Jews in Jerusalem than in New York City. But that's only a very recent phenomena. There are Jews still, to this day, scattered in the diaspora. They're going to be returned at the second advent of Jesus Christ, but not yet. All right, the Jewish diaspora cannot be blamed on the Lord. It is the consequence of their own rejection of God And it says so here, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. So we have, they have themselves to blame, not the Lord in rejecting them. All right, so there's the first three verses. Now we get to the song itself in verses four through 11. And I love this song. We'll see, uh, I have to keep you here till three in the afternoon. We're going to, we're going to get through this song. Oh, we got a deacons meeting today. We got a got to be quick. (laughs) All right. The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. This is what starts servant song number three. And it goes down to the end of the chapter. And as you read this verse, as you read these verses, as you read four through 11, Start to think in terms of Jesus Christ and his first advent. Read every verse and ask yourself, what is this making me think of with respect to Jesus Christ and this first advent? And what do I then make application of myself as an imitator of Christ in making my own personal application? Because, you know, when we're talking discipleship, well, gee, kind of seems like I probably should have some application there. <laughs> am, I, am I not a disciple? Am I supposed to be a disciple? Well, here's a verse on discipleship. I, I bet there's, a, there's an application to be found. Of course there is. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. The tongue of disciples. And just think about that for a little bit. And consider, as Isaiah, and the point is this, Isaiah's third servant song foreshadows many details from the first advent life of Jesus Christ. And ask yourself, what kind of speaker do you want to be known as? 
All right, if you've been pastoring for two years, you've been pastoring for 20 years, you've been pastoring for whatever, you're not pastoring yet, but you're thinking about it, okay? There's a day coming, ordinations uh, here in just 30 days or whatever it is, November 20th. All right, so it's coming up, getting quick. So we can ask Dan, what kind of, what kind of speaker do you want to be? What kind of tongue do you want to have? Do you want to have the tongue of, uh, of an orator, the tongue of a very eloquent uh, speaker such as Corinth was very impressed by. They want to bring in these uh, experts in rhetoric, these uh, great speakers that could command top dollar and, and uh, be very uh, impressed or impressive amongst the, themselves, really. Um, or do you want the tongue of a disciple? What's the tongue of a disciple? Do you want to have the kind of ministry that communicates with students of the Word of God? And maybe it's not the best polished rhetoric. Maybe it's not uh, all of the fancy uh, uh, accolades that come with, with, with that. But the disciples of the Word of God are being fed. The sheep are being fed. And as, as goofy as your, as your Spider-Man illustration is, the people got it. All right? They knew what, what was meant by that. They, they responded to the message because the tongue is the tongue of a disciple. And the speaker himself never stops learning. The speaker himself is a disciple. As we see in the second part of verse 4, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. If you ever stop listening as a disciple then you're really done as a pastor. You're done. Why do you think you can still be a speaker if you're not hearing the Word of God yourself? If you don't have the ear to hear, how can you have the tongue to speak? And so we have the sense of it here in verse 4. Jesus Christ spoke with the tongue of disciples, communicating what He heard with His disciple ear. And it is. It's a disciple tongue and it's a disciple ear in the language here of verse Four. We have several passages we can find in the Gospel of John that address this. John 7, John 8, John 12, John 14, time and time and time again. And to me, this is, this is critical because the men of his generation were dumbfounded, absolutely shocked. They said, this man teaches in a way that We've never seen before. He, he, he doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. There's a reason for that. Okay? Because he was listening to his father. And I put forth, I would submit to you that the Pharisees were not listening to God the Father. They were listening to their father, the devil. And he called them on it in John chapter 8. And so if you want to hold your finger here in Isaiah 50, we'll see in John chapter 7, or you can use your ribbon or your church bulletin or bubblegum wrapper, whatever you have handy. Just hold your place there in Isaiah 50. Can't do that with the iPad, can you? (laughs) John chapter 7. And in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but is His who sent me. If anyone is willing to do His will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. See, he was so in tune with his father, every morning listening, every morning praying, and delivering only that which the father gave for him to speak. Same chapter, you get down to verse 46. 
and, and they're just overwhelmed. These are the, uh, this is the, uh, the arresting officer and his team. You know, they, they sent a SWAT team out to arrest him. And uh, they came back to the Pharisees empty-handed. And the Pharisees in verse 45 say, well, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. <laughs> you know? And you realize not only is that a valid testimony on their behalf, but you know how insulting that is to these Pharisees? I mean, that's their, that's their line of work. That's their stock in trade. Chapter 8, we have verse 26 and 28. Jesus says, and you know, how many times can he testify of himself? How many times can he claim to be God? How many times can he affirm that he is the Christ? And all of these brood of vipers keep saying, well, will you tell us plainly? Will you tell us plainly? Who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And and that's probably the clearest of all of these uh, verses that point back to Isaiah 50 and verse 4, that he has the ear of a disciple and he has the tongue of a disciple, that he might encourage the weary one with a word, as it says, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. You ever wonder sometimes you're trying to encourage a sister and you're just, man, I don't know what to say. Uh, You know, what do I say? Well, quit worrying about it and just listen to what God's saying. Listen to what God's ministering to you. And then you got something you can say to somebody else. But if you're not listening to what God's saying to you, what are you going to do? Come up with something in your own creativity? Good luck with that. Verse 28. See, in verse 27, they did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but as I speak these things, as the Father taught me. You've got to have the ear of a disciple so you can have the tongue of a disciple. And that's what it's really uh, all about. Similar uh, things here in chapter 12 and chapter 14. We can grab these pretty quickly. John 12:49. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. All right, John 14:10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. In verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So time and time again, Jesus Christ is the illustration of that. Shouldn't surprise us because 700 years before Christ, uh, Isaiah was uttering this prophecy. Isaiah was revealing the nature of the servant of Yahweh in these servant songs. Then we got verse 5. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. And boy, here's one that we would want to take and spend a few weeks on. (laughs) We want to talk about an opened ear. We want to talk about a prepared body. We want to talk about Psalm 40 and, and the book of Hebrews. And some of the language of what happens here. And how do we relate an opened ear to a prepared body? Well, we do. <laughs> Jesus Christ was completely obedient to achieve the Father's purpose for his incarnation. The Lord has opened my ear. All right? Or as it says in Hebrews, a body thou hast prepared for me. 
what God has done is he has prepared for me. And it's like Ephesians. He were saved in a good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a purpose for us. I like, I like uh, Acts 13, talking about David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation. He then died and was buried, laid to rest with his fathers. Okay, Do we ever give thought to that? Am I serving the purpose of God in my generation? And what is expected of me? What is I want to be able to say on my deathbed, I have done the work that you have called for me to do. I have finished my course. I'm ready to go be with the Lord and the next generation can take it from here. Jesus Christ was completely obedient to achieve the Father's purpose for his incarnation. And as we talk about it, we've got Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Are we familiar with this? Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. In other words, ritual without reality. (laughs) You can be as religious all day long and miss the point. My ears you have opened. And there's the expression again. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Well, I thought he did, didn't he? I'm sure I read somewhere in Leviticus there's <laughs> burnt offerings and, and sin offerings. You're missing the point. Don't confuse the ritual with the reality. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. And here's this powerful messianic psalm is looking ahead to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what we're looking at in the servant songs of Isaiah. I suspect Isaiah himself was saturated with these psalms. So much of the psalms come out in Isaiah. And then, of course, Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 9 is the quotation of this the author of hebrews i believe it was barnabas i can't prove it but you can't prove i'm wrong (laughs) the anonymous author of hebrews possibly barnabas but whoever is quoting isaiah he's quoting uh, actually psalm 40 in this uh, hebrews 10 verses 5 through 9 And he's contrasting the blood of bulls and goats, the ritual of the Old Testament, the law, which is only a shadow, with the reality. And he says the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things. Not the very form of things. And it can never, by those sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. We addressed this last Sunday night. This is why Catholicism just burns my goat. All right? In that they, they, in the, burns my goat. That's not a, (laughs) all right. But they do their mass day after day after day, another mass, another mass, another mass, re-sacrificing the Christ. The magical powers of the priest are turning the elements into the body and blood of Christ and And they're sacrificing him again and again and again and again, completely missing the point. That shadow Christology was again and again and again and again looking forward in anticipation. But the substance belongs to Christ. And the Christ once and for all, once and for all, accomplished our redemption. 
And that's the whole point. In verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? The whole point in having the repeated offerings is to point out how useless they were if they were waiting for something better to come. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You can do all your external legalism all you want, all your ritual, all your uh, any of that religiosity. Notice, verse 5 then, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And here is Jesus Christ taking Psalm 40 and bringing it into his own application. In whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written in me to do your will, O God. And here's Jesus Christ once and for all accomplishing our redemption. I skipped over Philippians 2.8, didn't I? But it's making the same point. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself, becoming obedient. How obedient? <coughs> Even to the death on a cross. <coughs> so being found in appearance as a man in other words my ear you have opened my body you have prepared he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and so we have the humility of jesus in verse five <coughs> back to isaiah 50 verse six shows us that jesus christ despised the shame he despised the shame. You know, anytime I'm pondering, how can I pass this? How can I endure this? How can I put up with this or whatever? Rephrase the question. How did Jesus endure what he endured? Because my little piddly things are nothing compared to what he endured. And that's the example for us. I'm to fix my eyes on him the author and perfecter of faith. I'm not to fix my eyes on my problems. I'm not to fix my eyes on myself. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the one that despised the shame, endured the the cross, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He achieved the victory because he despised the shame. He turned the other cheek. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I do not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. You say, well, gee, that's, that's why, why did he do that? <laughs> you know, he's the king of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. Why does he put up with that? Because that's what saved us. Not the suffering in itself, but the result as he worked his way through that. You see, if he would have bailed at this point, there wouldn't have been a cross. And so he endured. He endured because the Father asked him to. He endured because this was the will of the Father. He had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. We're expected to learn the same thing. And so we have the principles here. And of course, Hebrews 12.2 is our verse in the New Testament that talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus who despised the shame, endured the cross, and is seated at the right hand of God. You know, is there something that, that bothers you? Is there something you're embarrassed by? I asked that question last hour. There are certain things that you're embarrassed by, you don't want to talk about them. Well, what if those very things are the fruit-bearing uh, opportunities that he's laid before you? Now how embarrassed are you? Okay. Or in this application here, are you going to submit to the undeserved suffering? 
say, well, I don't, I don't deserve that. Well, neither did Christ. Who do you think you are? <laughs> All right. Is a disciple above his master? Is a, is a or student? Is a slave above his master? Why do you feel entitled to not, uh, you know, have your cheek slapped? Turn the other cheek. He did. And this is the, uh, the application here in John chapter 19. And, you know, you read this. There was a time I tried to read a passion narrative every month. I went back and forth. Matthew one month, Mark, then Luke, then John. And I haven't done that for a while now. I probably should go back and start doing that again. Just read a passion narrative about once a month or so and remind yourself why you're saved and what he did. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. You see Mel Gibson's movie on the, on the uh, Passion of the Christ? Do you see? I mean, Hollywood does great special effects and you can literally see meat being ripped off the bone if you're into that kind of thing. All right. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's gruesome, but I recommend you watch it. Recommend you remind yourself what our, and it's not what saved you, but because he endured through that, he then went to the cross and accepted the wrath for your sins. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. At least one of these guys gets saved, I believe. The centurion, I think, testifies at the, at the moment of the cross that this is the Son of God. In any event, Jesus Christ despised the shame. We have these pictures of our Savior. He exhibited a flint-faced focus. Jesus Christ exhibited a flint-faced focus. Verse 7 of chapter 50. And uh, pastors need to have this, and I think every believer better get one of these pretty quickly. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. So never mind verse 6. Let it go. Keep focused on the Lord. Therefore I have set my face like flint. Okay? Toughen up. Set your face like flint. You've got the message. You've got the truth. You're serving God. Who cares what they're saying? And I know that I will not be ashamed. And if I'm ashamed now, hey, that's temporal. That's just for the meantime. That's just here and now. And I've been ashamed before. I'll be ashamed again. It'll happen a thousand more times before I die, I'm sure. What I don't want to be is ashamed with the judgment seat of Christ because I denied him today. I don't want to be ashamed then. If I'm faithful now, I will be eternally unashamed, standing blameless at that great white throne. I'm sorry, that judgment seat. So therefore I have set my face like flint. I know that I will not be ashamed. Let's keep a flint-faced focus before our Father in the Word of God. All right? Not just pastors, although I think it's a good illustration for pastors. We have the expression in Ezekiel 3. Um, here's a good ordination passage. We had to assign this to somebody for... Dan's ordination coming up. But Ezekiel chapter 3, imagine being sent to a ministry and on day one you're told no one's going to listen to you. <laughs> welcome to the prophetic ministry. You know, welcome to Brewster, Washington. Uh, why are you here? <laughs> you know, you got the job and uh, have fun because we're not going to listen to anything you have to say. <laughs> Can you imagine? And that's, that's how Ezekiel got his start. I think uh, the indication is probably it was his 30th birthday uh, when he would normally 
in, in the priestly line. He would normally then start his service in the temple, but he can't do that because he's in exile. He's been taken away to Babylon, and so rather than start his priestly service, uh, he gets called into prophetic office, and, uh, and he's told on day one, this is a stiff-necked people, and uh, that's all right because I'm with you. So uh, Ezekiel 3, verse 8, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. You better fear me more than you fear them, is what Yahweh is telling them here. You're going to compromise your message because you're afraid of, of making the church members mad or whatever? You better be afraid of God more than them. If His Word says something, preach it. Like emery, harder than flint. I read that already. Verse 9, they're a rebellious house. Verse 10, moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Ezekiel gets called here son of man hundreds of times in this book. And he's a great picture of Christ in this regard. Notice he's hearing and speaking. All right, listen and speak. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, speak to them, and tell them whether they listen or not, Thus saith the Lord. So that's his call to ministry. And a great uh, encouragement there for uh, Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel uh, lost his wife. God told him that. He said, I'm going to kill your wife, and you cannot grieve over the loss of your wife. And uh, that's why I think these prophets are spoken of as, you know, Hebrews calls them men of whom the world is not worthy. And uh, the things that uh, an Old Testament prophet had to go through. Jesus had the flint-faced focus exhibited here in uh, Luke 9:51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined. His eyes were locked. His face was set to go to Jerusalem. He's absolutely focused on the, the pending crucifixion. And Luke 9:51 describes that. And of course, his disciples are clueless. They're all arguing about who, which one of them is going to be the greatest. They're all, uh, they're all concerned because they get this insult at a Samaritan village and, and you know, the sons of thunder want to start calling fire down to nuke the place. Completely clueless that Jesus Christ has his face set. He's got a flint-faced focus to go to the cross. And that was totally lost on them. And again, Hebrews 12 too. Not only do we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, he himself had his eyes fixed where? who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. He had his flint face focus, not on the cross, not on our sins, but on his father. And he ascended to his father. He had a seat at his father's right hand because he had that flint faced focus. No matter what that the critics and the skeptics and the Bible haters and the God haters have to say. All right? You better fear God more than you fear man in uh, in that sense. See, Jesus Christ knew that God the Father was his defender and his judge. Jesus Christ knew that God was his defender and his judge. Verses 8 and 9 here. Verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 50 of this song. He who vindicates me is near. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to justify what I'm saying. I'm accountable before Jesus Christ. He defends me. He vindicates me. He judges me. He is my defender and my judge. I answer to Him. 
You know, in 1 Peter 5, elders, uh, the pastors of the church are commanded to, to feed the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The faithful shepherd will be rewarded by the chief shepherd. And so we have the application there. He says in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? You know, if God is for me, who can be against me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Is how the Apostle Paul will adapt this in Romans chapter 8. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. If there's a prosecuting attorney out there that's going to draw near, hey, draw near, buddy, because my defender's already drawn near. <laughs> okay? This court's already in session, and my, my defender is already, uh, he's on the case. What are you going to do about it? Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? If God's my help, then who is against me? And I like to follow that up with, and who cares? <laughs> right? Who can be against me and who cares? It doesn't matter. Behold, they will all wear out like a garment, like the moth will eat them. You know, any enemy you've got is only temporary. God's eternal. His word's eternal. Your salvation's eternal. Your eternal life is eternal, okay? Think about it. Your accusers, your attackers, your haters, they will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. It's just passing away. In the meantime, pray for them, right? Why, why have they been assigned to you? Why are they afflicting you? My mother used to say, um, well, I figure they're picking on me because uh, if they were picking on other people, those other people couldn't handle it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good thing they're picking on you then. All right. You know, other people wouldn't be praying for them. Other people would probably just hate them and fight back or whatever. So mom thought it was, hey, that's a great thing they're picking on me. All right. Interesting. I'll try to learn that. You know, we have Psalm 118 and verse 6, which we've already talked about, but we can see it. Psalm 118 and verse 6. We got Romans 8, which we've already talked about, but we can see it. We got 1 Peter 2, which we've already talked about, but we can see it. This is why we don't take vengeance ourselves. This is why we don't try to uh, get our own back or we try to uh, seek our own revenge. That's not our, our, even our department. Who do we think we are? Jesus is our defender and he's earned it. All right, Psalm 118 and verse 6. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? You know, does it matter? Someone says they're going to put a curse on you. Okay, whatever. Serve your God. Do what you think you can do. But, uh, you know, I serve my God and he's going to take care of me as far as that goes. All right. I worked with a witch one time and she, she promised she was going to curse me. She was actually a practicing, no kidding witch working for the sheriff's department. And for all I know, she's still there. I don't know. Hadn't seen her lately. Um, but yeah, she said she was going to put a curse on me. All right. He that is in me is stronger than he that is in the world. I'm not really worked up about it. Whatever. If he, in fact, if he permits it, then we'll see what happens. I've never been cursed before, but we'll see. If he, if he allows it, I, I'm skeptical he's going to allow it. 
And uh, I don't know if she did or not, I never noticed. <laughs> and so there's the promise, okay? And the psalmist, or, or Isaiah here, in the song of the servant, is singing this and applying it future to Christ, to Jesus himself, to the Messiah when he arises, that he is going to leave himself in the hands of God. And he does so, even when he's hanging on the cross. He's in God's hands. Romans 8, of course, is our, we love Romans 8. It's a good eternal security passage. It's a great passage of positional truth and the promises that we have. Verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has already done the hardest thing he's ever going to do in in sacrificing his son. How can he not do the easier thing now in blessing us in his son? Clearly, uh, he, he will. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's going to file that charge? And how far are they going to get in that legal case? They're going to get nowhere. Because God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Any accusation Satan wants to make, there's Jesus Christ sitting right there to say, paid for, redeemed, innocent. Yeah, he's guilty as charged, but he's innocent because I paid that price. What a, what, a, what a blessing, right? Who is the one who condemns? Yes, Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And we, it goes on then to discuss why this principle applies to the aspect of eternal security. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. You need more? Say, Pastor, I'm convinced already. Overkill, you're giving us too many. Well, I gave you a bunch last week, and you didn't read those either, so let's read these. Told you last week, I said, it's too many to read in class, so email me and I'll send you the list. All right, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see the example he set? He was entrusting himself to God, to the God the Father, or the servant to Yahweh, if you want to go back and use that language from Isaiah 50. He knew that God was his defender and his judge, and he didn't utter a word. I think his anguish was so sharp at one point, he had to keep his mouth clamped shut. Can you imagine? He's the creator God of the universe. He speaks and the world comes into being. Had he spoken something in his anger just then, what kind of, what kind of nuclear blast could have come out of that? I, I, I don't know. Okay, But he stayed silent and he went to the cross. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verses 10 through 11 now. I, I find a salvation testimony here. I've got to close with this. Jesus Christ is the only object of faith provided by God for personal salvation. Let me get back to finish Isaiah 50. And look at how soteriological this is. Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11. And so the servant is talking about being a a listener, being a disciple, being a Bible teacher, 
being obedient to the will of the Father, suffering undeservedly, uh, trusting himself in the Father, uh, operating with a face like flint, and all of these things. God is for me. Who can be against me? And in every aspect of Jesus Christ and his first advent, we see the unfolding of it here in this, in this paragraph. And now notice, as, as it concludes, verses 10 and 11, I think it's the, Isaiah is now bringing the reader into the point of decision, to the application point. What think you of Christ? Who is among you that fears the Lord? Uh, and we know that the servant does, but how about you guys? Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? There's a reason why the servant has come. The servant has come as a prophet like unto Moses, and if you hear him, you're saved. If you reject him, you're going to hell. So who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. I think this is the Acts 16.31 of the Old Testament. This is a, a trust, a faith Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. Look, if you're going to try to find an alternate light besides the light of the world, you're just lighting a torch. Okay? This you have from my hand, you will lie down in torment the reason why, you know, the book of Jude and other places talk about snatching the brand from the fire, all right, rescuing the, the, the one that's on the verge of going to hell. And if you think about it, <laughs> I like the imagery here, you ever, you know, of course you don't, who does? But imagine, craft yourself a suit of torches, you know, a, a jacket, pants, shoes, just wrap yourself around with torches, soak the torches with oil, would that be stylish? Okay, and then light it and see how well you do. Okay, and, and if you think about it, everyone that goes to hell, who do they have to blame? Because they had the opportunity to obey the voice of His servant, to walk in the light and not the darkness. Now, I'm out of time, but Deuteronomy 18. There's a message here with respect to the prophet. Let me. I got to grab that. Deuteronomy 18, and then we'll close. But we've got Job 13, 15. We've got a lot of Old Testament gospel messages. People tell me, well, we don't know how people were saved in the Old Testament. Really? I think they were saved by trusting in Christ, same as I got saved. But I'm looking back, they're looking forward. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. This is Moses getting ready to die, saying... Uh, like in the message of Hebrews, I'm faithful as a servant. He's going to be faithful as a son. So a prophet is coming. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord. Let me not see his great fire anymore or I will die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. They were prophesying and didn't even know it. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Boy, that goes well with what we saw earlier. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. If you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no other 
name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so here we have the uh, Acts 4.12 of uh, the Old Testament. Okay? The Acts 16.31. Pick your favorite New Testament gospel passage. I'll find you an Old Testament equivalent. Job 13.15, Psalm 9.10. And of course, John 1.12 and 13. He came to his own, his own received him not. John 20, 31, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. All right, next week, Isaiah 51. And then uh, 52, and then 53. We get, we get to learn more about this faithful servant. We get to see more of Jesus Christ 700 years before a virgin con- conceived and bore a son. Fun stuff. I love this part of Isaiah. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessings of your word. Thank you for your son, for his obedience to come before you. Father, I thank you for uh, the example that he set. It's a pattern for us to follow. I pray that we would be diligent as he was diligent to present ourselves approved before your face, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray that we would learn how to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Father, he died that we might live. I pray, Father, that we would be uh, pictures of Christ in our living sacrifice to his uh, glory and to your good pleasure. Father, I thank you for Pastor Greg joining us this morning. I pray for his congregation there in Washington. I just rejoice at the, uh, the two years you've had him serving there. I thank you for Holly. Thank you for the children. Father, continue to bless, continue to provide. I just thank you for all your faithfulness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.